Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Hi, and welcome to episode 22 of our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightman. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling, and uh, we're going to cover the closing chapters of Micah and the opening chapters of uh, the epistle that James wrote in the New Testament. But, Pastor Zarling, did you know that uh, today, Friday, June 4th, is National Donut Day? I do not, and we're recording today from Pastor Lightman's home in downtown Racine. What do you call your house? Oh, I, that was kind of just on a whim in the other take that we did. I, it was uh, Casa del Lightman, but... Because my, my house is officially called the Zarling Jedi Temple. It does have that name in the, the Padawan Training Center, right? Yep, that's my, that's my playground for all the kids in the backyard. I'm, I'm apologizing to Pastor Zarling because I did not provide donuts for him as a guest in our home. Uh, we took a walk with my three boys earlier this morning to go get some at a bakery, and we sort of ate them on the way back home in, in a, the town square there looking at the dragons in downtown Racine, the uh, Chinese dragons there. Um, but uh, we are going to look at, start with actually Micah chapter 6. And uh, again, speaking of my boys, I know I said last time that we have a son, our middle son named Micah, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock him to pieces by saying that, uh, telling anybody who listens to the Thirsty Podcast, he actually has a, a YouTube channel um, and that he is constantly promoting. I'm not going to uh, tell anybody to go check it out, but I just want to do this so that I can say I actually mentioned his YouTube channel in my podcast, which is something he's been begging me to do. Um, yeah, he likes to bring up that his podcast or his YouTube channel has more followers than our church does. And I said, well, we're going to be having a Water of Life YouTube channel very soon when we're totally merged at the end of this month and I'm going to subs subscribe every one of our members personally so that uh, we have more than Micah does. And if our church was uh, a cute little kid with lots of family members that feel devoted enough to uh, subscribe to him, our church would probably uh, have the same thing too. Uh, loving and supportive family that subscribes to his videos. Um, this is a terrible introduction to the prophet Micah, but that, that's what we've got. So let's, let's begin. Um, I'm going to shock you a little bit maybe by saying, um, I don't know if I totally agree with the heading that the editors of this uh, EHV Bible use to say God's case against his people. Because when you look at the words of uh, Micah chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 8, roughly, um, it's pretty clear God is using courtroom terminology, and he's saying, let's have a hearing, let's, let's have a case uh, with a judge and a jury and so forth. But um, his people are not the one on, uh, uh, what do you call it? On trial. The plaintiff and the uh, defendant. Uh, defendant. He's the Lord is actually making himself into the defendant and saying, I, I, I want to explain to you, I want to try to defend myself against your accusations against me. So that's a good point. So Professor Brug, who is the general editor of the EHV translation, he's actually a member at our congregation of Water of Life. So we'll make sure to point it out to him that uh, the heading is wrong. 
then it should be the people's case against God. I, I take issue with my uh, former professor, yes, Dr. Brug. <laughs> yeah, so God is challenging the people here to bring a case against him. And then the courtroom scene that you set up is that God is the defendant, the people are the plaintiff bringing the charges, and then God says that the mountains are the judge. Plead your case to the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Uh, he says... Uh, you know, these are these are part of the ancient liturgy of the Christian church called the reproaches that goes all the way back to the seventh century. It's kind of a neat thing about the Lutheran church that we use orders of service that go back decades, hundreds of years, even a millennia or two. And so these are uh, a portion of what you will hear oftentimes in the beginning of the Good Friday service. Uh, it's called the reproaches. Uh, thus says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people? And how have I offended you? Answer me, for I've raised you up out of the prison house of sin and death, and you delivered up your Redeemer to be scourged. For I've redeemed you from the house of bondage, and, have nailed, and you have nailed your Savior to the cross, O my people. And then we sing a verse of Lamb of God, pure and holy. There is silence for confession and absolution or meditation. And then there's two more reproaches. Thus says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people? And how have I offended you? Answer me, for I have conquered all your foes, and you have given me over and delivered me to those who persecute me. For I have fed you with my word and refreshed you with living water, and you've given me gall and vinegar to drink, O my people. And then the last charge, a reproach. Thus says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people? And how have I offended you? Answer me. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? My people, is this how you thank your God, O oh, my people? You see, we like to bring charges against God that he's wronged us and harmed us in some way. But eventually God's patience runs out and now he's calling on the hills and the mountains to be the arbiters between us and God. It, which is an amazing thing to think. What, what most of us would do is get defensive uh, in a negative way and say, um, how dare you accuse me of wrongdoing? Don't you uh, see all these nice things that I've done for you? And that is what God is doing a little bit. He's saying, I, I don't really get it why you're accusing me of wrongdoing. But uh, he does not immediately strike us dead when uh, we accuse him of harming us or, or having ill will toward us. Uh, he actually entertains this, the conversation. He, he says, okay, let's have this discussion. And, uh, and then he has the discussion. Um, I, I, I always loved singing those on Good Friday uh, at, at our churches that I served at. And um, uh, that's, it's, a neat, it's a very haunting melody, uh, kind of just a, a solo line a cappella, and then and then when it comes right in with the uh, uh, Lamb of God, pure and holy, it's it's so it's just warming and embracing uh, with to hear the congregation respond that way. But the point is, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of this because he actually did stand trial and answer to accusations that people brought against him wrongfully, uh, and uh, that's some of the, oh, those other. Uh, reproaches. We, how often do you use that word, reproach? 
No other time except for that Good Friday yeah. service. Yeah, it, I mean, it really means is a scolding or a, a yeah, an accusation. And um, the other one that you mentioned, I think it's the second one. Which is the one that talks about grapes? I think it's oh. the vineyard. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, that's the second one, the vineyard. Okay, and that's that actually comes from uh, I, that was one of my first one of my seminary Old Testament sermons was on um, the the song of the vineyard from Isaiah. So again, we have Micah that is the blue collar Isaiah. Uh, both of them uh, saying, "God's people, you sh- you should know better than this. You you should know that God has spoiled you rotten, and there is no way you have any right to." accuse him of wrongdoing. And we can find ourselves falling into that trap, that temptation of charging God with evil. Uh, I was texting some of our members today asking for prayer requests because one was in the hospital, one, uh, his dad is in another country and uh, he's uh, fallen very ill. One that her dad died on Sunday and the funeral is today. So you can think all of them have reasons to charge God with offending them. And we can do the same thing. But if we look objectively with clear reasoning, even without faith, we can see how God has been good to us. And then when we have the gift of faith, well, we see that goodness in Christ actually is graciousness. Uh, as you were talking, Pastor Lightning, I was thinking about an analogy of in my house, my four daughters, they've grown up knowing they don't ask dad for help with math or science. I don't understand any of that. They go to mom. But if there's any kind of writing or speaking assignment, I help them because, you know, I tell them there's someone in the house that writes a term paper every week in a mm-hmm. sermon. And I remember helping one of my daughters, you know, with their homework. And if she came back to me and said, Dad, the homework you helped me with, I got a B on, you know, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be pretty upset with her. I helped you, but it, you're the one who gets it, uh, who's earned that grade. And that's the way it is with God. You know, the, the Israelites were charging God with doing evil and they're the ones who are the ones who were who were sinning against the true God. The rest of chapter six uh, goes into a lot of detail about uh, the punishment that God is going to inflict on his people uh, who are not converted by his call for uh, grace and repentance. Um, it, maybe it's worth mentioning just uh, quickly verses six through eight. Though those are kind of popular. In fact, uh, verse eight is one of the most popular for uh, people, especially in the secular world, to quote. Um, but uh, before I get into that one, it's interesting when you look at verses six and seven, how um, you, you mentioned having teenage daughters or teenage sons, teenage kids in general, and uh, the way that they can tend to over-dramatize things that like a kid comes home from school and says, oh, I have just a million, billion hours of homework or, um, you know, oh, everything, every, you know, today was the worst day. Everything went wrong. Um, and that's kind of what you see with the way Israel is responding here. 
uh, it's saying it, it just goes to ridiculous levels of saying, look at how much God asks us to do. He asks us to, what, what do I have to do to please you, God? Do I have to uh, get period with you with burnt off, period before you with burnt offerings? Uh, do you want a thousand rams? Do you want ten thousand streams of oil? Uh, one of the other gifts of offering they would give at the temple. Should I give my firstborn? Should I sacrifice a, a child to make you happy, God? What's it going to take? And then God kind of like that patient, you know, level-headed father in verse eight says, no, I've, I've told you what I, I've told you what is good. I've told you what I want, uh, carry out justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Yeah. And that's exactly what God wants from us. He doesn't want all of these great acts of service. I read a story this week of, uh, two ladies in Florida, uh, that one of them, was dying from uh, kidney failure and she needed a new kidney. Well, the new wife of her ex-husband, so it gets kind of confusing, but the new wife married her husband and then two days later gave one of her kidneys to the ex-wife because she wanted that ex-wife there for uh, the birth of the grandchild because even though husband and wife had gotten a divorce two, two decades ago, they still work together to raise their children. And that's a great fruit of faith. And as much as you and I treasure that, God treasures even more that uh, people are receiving forgiveness of sins. Uh, Even better than giving spare parts to save lives, God wants to receive sins so that he can give forgiveness to spare eternal life. As we move into chapter seven, um, there there are more unsettling threats of the prophet. And uh, I I don't know what stuck out to you the most, Pastor Zarling, but uh, for me, it was kind of um, disturbing to read what Micah wrote, starting with verse five. Uh, Do not trust the neighbor. Do not put confidence in a close friend. Watch what comes out of your mouth. Even when you lie down with the wife, you embrace. And and you think to yourself, man, that is kind of scary to think that anybody, even the most, the people I trust the most implicitly uh, could possibly turn on me, that uh, Christ is really the only one that will always be a trustworthy friend, will always keep a secret, will always uh, uh, offer an encouraging word or never talk bad about you to somebody else. And um, this kind of of sets up the... um, prediction that Jesus used in the New Testament of um, that uh, he, he would he would cause division among family members that uh, daughter-in-laws will uh, be against their mother-in-laws and it, it's kind of timely about what you just mentioned especially with strained relationships and divorces and uh, trying to rebuild them through through donating uh, organs to, to rebuild the relationship yeah so what uh, Micah is talking about here in these verses of verses one through six is people were uh, carrying out uh, only for their own interests. And I think that's a good explanation of what's going on in America today. That's one of the reasons that our nation is in the shape that it's in, that we're not looking out for others. And that's true of unbelievers, but it's also true of Christians. And yet, in the midst of all of the wickedness that Micah expresses, 
then he comes with verse 7 and he expresses hope and confidence. He says, but as for me, I will keep watching for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. So in the midst of a raging sea of evil, uh, his hope is firmly anchored in God. He looks ahead to the last days when God will give his promised Savior. And we had our school picnic this week, and I was talking to one of the parents who is a police officer in one of the cities near here. He was telling me that uh, one of the things that's going on in their city right now is they've got teenagers, kids that aren't even old enough to drive, that are jumping into vehicles that are left running by people, and then they're going for a joyride. It's, it's a game for them to see how many uh, vehicles they can steal and then they shoot indiscriminately into crowds and it's a game for them to see how many people they can shoot. And I was shocked. I hadn't heard anything like that. And I just said, those kids need Jesus. Hmm. And, and I think that's what Mike is saying here too. All of the evil of people looking out for their own interests, what do they need? They need the promise of the Savior. I had heard about that. In fact, it might have been the same uh, law enforcement officer. I don't know. Actually, maybe not. But uh, about, especially when it comes to the, the DoorDash service, that uh, if, if restaurants or um, grocery stores are delivering food to homes, then the delivery person will often just want to run up to the door and leave the car running with the brake on. And, uh, and then that make, becomes an easy target. That's kind of a, yeah, that's definitely a scary thing. Um, Chapter 7 uh, ends with uh, another piece of music, and I don't know if you would have considered this a piece of music, but this has kind of a, a special meaning for me. There was a German immigrant that belonged to the church that I served. Actually, she was one of the last funerals that I did before I, actually very, almost the very last funeral I did before I left at uh, St. Matthew's in Benton Harbor. And um, she was beloved and known in her congregation for doing a lot of singing with the choir and solo work. Uh, but she was very elderly. I think she was in her 90s at least and uh, was homebound. Uh, but she would still love to sing. And uh, sometimes we would sing hymns that I knew and that she knew in German. But uh, one time her daughter, she had one daughter at least that was a member of the church and her husband and, and she said, next time you go visit mom, you should ask her about this chorale or cantata. I forget what she said, but, but she said, uh, ask her about that cantata and ask her to sing it for you. And it's kind of a big mystery for me um, who wrote it or where it came from, but, and, I, and even how the harmony goes, but I know at least the melody uh, in German, and it's these closing verses of Micah uh, and it, I, I, I sang it in German at her funeral. Um, I don't know if it would do any good to sing it for our listeners today, but um, this question that it begins with is really the name of the prophet himself, who is like the Lord. And uh, that's, how the, that's how the verse begins, verse 18. Who is a God like you who forgives guilt? Who, who, the, all the other gods of all the other religions, uh, none of them would ever think of saying, I'm just going to let you get off scot-free. I'm going to take the punishment myself and forgive your sins to you. 
I don't know, Pastor Lane. I have never in 25 years of ministry had a shut-in ask me to sing them something. I'm not sure what the difference is. I've, uh, oh, let alone, you, need, you need my my mom could coach you. She is a singing coach. Let alone in, in English or in German. <laughs> so here I want to talk about moral theistic deism. Uh, what that is. That's what people are looking for today. Uh, even Christians. What does that mean? Moral theistic deism. Well, they're looking for morality. Uh, people living and looking and doing the right things. They want therapy. People want something to make them feel good. So they pray, they believe, they sing, and it feels good. And they want deism. So people want a God, but they want a God that's out there, that's kind of like a genie in a bottle, that they can just ask things of, but someone who does not ask things of them. He keeps his distance. Yeah, that they're not accountable to him. Moral theistic deism. Therapeutic. Therapeutic, yeah. Moral therapeutic deism. And uh, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that Micah talks about here in these last few verses. Uh, God isn't there to make you feel good about yourself. God is there to take away your sins and give you forgiveness. Uh, who is a God like you who forgives guilt and who passes over the rebelling of the survivors from his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever. He delights in showing mercy. He will have compassion on us again. He will overcome our guilty deeds and you will throw all their sins in the depths of the sea. I mean, those are just fantastically powerful words to end Micah's prophecy. Uh, we're going to go from there into the book of James, and we'll look at chapters 1 through 3. Now, uh, James is a book of the Bible that uh, is very popular for, uh, especially people from a Roman Catholic background, when... Uh, they hear the teaching of grace alone or salvation simply by believing, simply by faith. Uh, and, and then they point to all these passages in James, which say um, that you are justified by your deeds, not just by faith. And uh, then the question becomes, well, what do you, what does the scripture mean by justified? Is it talking about your, uh, not guilty status before God, or is it talking about how you are justified in the eyes of the, the people around you? Uh, so we'll start with chapter one, and James, the author, uh, would seem to be, I, I don't know what your research dug up, but it would seem like this is the, the brother of our Lord? Correct. And uh, would, would he also be the, the same James who was the chairman of the Jerusalem Council then? Uh or is that I think a, different, so. a different James? Either way, is a believer named James. He is the, he's our Lord's brother. He, yeah, he is not James, the brother of John. He was ah, the one that sure. was he was the one that was uh, persecuted and put to death by King Herod. Oh, that, I think that is that chairman of the Jerusalem. Right. So that's a different James. But um, the the way that I had this described to me one time that was great is uh, the the supporters of works righteous theology or, or uh, papal theology, they like to picture uh, Paul with, uh, with his sword drawn, uh, du dueling with James, who has his sword drawn, that uh, Paul is saying it's salvation 
by faith alone. And James is saying, no, it's faith plus works to get saved. And uh, what uh, the person giving this analogy told me is actually uh, they're both defending salvation by grace through faith alone. It's, and it's not that they have their swords drawn facing so that they can duel each other. It's actually they've got their swords pointed out and they are defending uh, grace by faith alone against two different attackers. The, the one attacker is saying you have to be saved by your works. That's the one Paul is defending against. And the other attacker is uh, people who think that, uh, well, I can just be saved by grace alone, so my works don't matter. And James is saying, no, no, your works do matter. Right. As Lutherans, we would say faith alone saves. That's one of the solas, alones, of the Lutheran faith of the Reformation. So faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Okay, so that's Paul, as faith alone saves, and James is saving faith is never alone. And they complement each other. Uh, in the first couple of verses, Paul, or James is talking then to Christians who are being persecuted, the diaspora. So these are Jewish Christians that have been spread out over the known world. And he says, uh, Consider complete joy, my brothers, whenever you fall into various kinds of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces patient endurance, and patient endurance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we're never excited to undergo persecution. And yet, James says, when you undergo persecution, you're toughened up by it and you persevere. I, I talked last week about taking my daughter Miriam to the airport to go to Fort Knox. Well, she's had a difficult time this week there because the airport lost one of her bags, you know, like $1,500 worth of clothing and boots and all the kind of stuff that she needs. Uh, you know, and it's very stressful for her to, to be there. And yet, I keep reminding her as dad, hey, if you can get to this, you're going to be better for it. And the same thing, I have to keep preaching to myself. If uh, think people come at me with different things, I can remember iron sharpens iron. It's better for me. Uh, I know when I've ministered to a young lady once that, you know, when she was on spring break, she was raped. You know, that was very hard to minister to her in that way. But then perseverance comes from that persecution, that suffering. And then she was able to minister to other young ladies who were raped. And so God, when you're going through it, it's difficult. And yet, uh, as we look back, we can say, oh, we're better. We're stronger. We're more sanctified now because we've suffered through this. Yeah, one, one of the things in verse 2, when James says, that you should consider your uh, trials and hardships, you should consider them pure joy. I think we immediately think joy must mean I have to feel happy about it. And there certainly is that aspect of joy, that there's a positive and uh, exuberant emotion. But uh, there's also a meaning behind that word joy of relief, that you, you can be relieved to, to see that, uh, for instance, something is true. Uh, if you see I'm being persecuted or I'm going through hardships and trials, that can be kind of relieving to see, oh, why, I was wondering, you know, maybe maybe I'm not as strong of a Christian as I thought I was, but now I, I can see that I am. Or I, maybe I was wondering if I really was following the true faith in Jesus, but Jesus promised 
that I would bear a cross for him so it can be kind of a relief when you go through trials or sufferings. Then he goes on to talk about being humble by uh, our, our poverty or our richness. Uh, that as if we're poor, we take uh, pride in the fact that we're poor uh, because God has removed our wealth from us, power, ambition of the world. So we're privileged to be able to focus mainly on Jesus. And then the rich uh, who have their wealth, then we should be humble that God has given all of that uh, in order to then use that wealth for the growth of God's kingdom. And so we're humble whether we have a lot or we have a little. One of the things I'll probably bring up a lot in this whole book is uh, another tidbit I picked up in a conference one time that uh, the presenter was talking about the book of James. And he said, what's interesting is when you look at the Song of Mary in uh, Luke chapter 1, she sings all about the uh, mighty being cast down from their thrones and the lowly being lifted up. And then uh, Jesus will talk about the first being last and the last will be first. And then James, you've got the recurring theme of the uh, poor being the truly exalted ones and the rich being the actually impoverished ones. uh, You can sort of see that theme and the presenter just made the great point I always like to remind people of. uh, Maybe part of this is you could think of those two boys growing up in the same household where Mary was teaching them these things. And uh, that'll be be a neat uh, theme to trace in James. Um, As I'm looking at chapter one, do you find yourself, Pastor Zarman, using verses? Uh, I, I can just think of dozens of times that I will use verses from this chapter in teaching catechism. Right. Yeah. What, what are some of the ones that you would use? Uh, well, I think when you're talking about the Lord's Prayer, uh, lead us not into temptation. Oh, that's no. verses 12 through uh, through 15. Uh, you know, And there to understand... But each person is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own desire. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Uh, Martin Luther expressed it this way. uh, We can't prevent sinful desires from coming into our minds any more than we can prevent birds from flying over our heads. But he said, but we can stop a bird from building a nest on our head. And so we can't prevent sinful desires to come into our hearts and our minds, but we can prevent them from building a home inside of our heads and in our hearts. Yeah, a lot of times people will point out that Martin Luther maybe went over the top in some of his comments about that, you know, James is a strawy epistle or things like that. And, and maybe, and he probably did go over the top to make that point a little bit. But the fact is he used James extensively, especially in the small catechism, with the petition you just mentioned, the very first words of what does this mean are taken from James 1. God surely tempts no one to sin. Um, I know for myself that uh, verses uh, 22 through uh, 25 uh, are used to describe how the law works, that one of the ways that the law is used is as a mirror to show us our sin, that you go and look in a mirror and you see, oh, I've got this dirt on my face. Well, that's what the law does. You go and you look in a mirror and the law shows you uh, that you've fallen short of God's, God's glory. 
And I've used verse 19 a lot in talking to people about anger. I teach a class and do counseling for anger management. Uh, Verse 19, remember this, my dear brothers, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then I always use the story of Abraham Lincoln when he was president that he had a soldier that was very upset with another soldier. Maybe it was a commanding officer. And Lincoln had him sit down and write a letter uh, to his commanding officer. And the soldier did that, wrote it all out. Abraham Lincoln took it without even reading it. He then put it into the fire. And he said, all right, that's the letter you wanted to write. Now write the letter you need to write. And I always counsel that with people. said, don't ever text something when you're angry. Don't call people right away. Don't shoot off an email. Think it over. Take a day. Uh, Some of our soccer coaches, they're good in saying, don't come talk to us right after a game. Sit and take 24 hours and then come and talk to us. See if you're still upset about the way the game happened. And that's good advice for all of us is be slow to anger, think everything through, and then react. Because you would know, have you ever received a letter that from... I have received letters. I've received, I I even received one where it was signed anonymous. I thought that was hilarious. She wrote the name word anonymous at the letter. (laughs) My name is anonymous. Yeah. Um, And we should definitely not skip uh, verses 16 through 18, uh, which is just a great illustration of the fact that James does not in any way teach salvation by grace plus works or, or that your works have to justify you and make you right with God. Uh, because verse 18, well, first of all, uh, verse 17 says, God is nothing but a fountain of good gifts. He is constantly giving good things and every good thing comes from him. Uh, and then verse 18 says that uh, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. So you, you don't uh, get yourself right with God by uh, your works, he, he has to give birth to you, to your soul, uh, when you hear his word, which is another good uh, catechism uh, verse to think about when we say, you know, baptism converts you. Uh, that is true. Uh, the, the other thing that is true is it's also possible to have your soul given birth or be converted by simply hearing God's word. Is there anything else you want to talk about the first chapter? Let's move on to chapter two. Uh, Before we started talking uh, and recording, uh, Pastor Light and I were talking about how difficult it is to go through some of these epistles because you'll often hear the pastor preach on, you know, three, four, six verses at a time, and it's a whole 20-minute sermon. Uh, And and we're covering each chapter in like 10 minutes or so. Uh, Chapter 2, he talks about in verse 4, he tell, James tells us not to become judges with evil thoughts. So what, is that, what does that mean? Uh, probably you'd be biased or somehow think, you know, it'd be horrified. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say recently I went through a course on uh, cultural competency and, and how to not be, uh, not be racist. And I think it's, it's very easy for people to uh, these days to, to be horrified and just amazed that anybody would be racist. Is, that, is it wrong? Absolutely. 
is it a sin? God condemns it, yes. Uh, but uh, to, to then be horrified or just be amazed that anybody could possibly be racially prejudiced, um, I, I don't think, th- I think that's kind of being a judge with an evil thought because you're saying, I would, n- I would never you know, be so awful of a person as to commit this sin. Whatever the sin is, whether it's uh, cultural incompetency or anything, uh, is that kind of what you were getting Yeah, to? I was going to go in the same direction about there's a lot of discussion right now about critical race theory. Uh, and it's really about judging people based on the color of their skin. So in my eighth grade catechism class, I have a, a session where I have the kids put their heads down on the desk, not to punish them, but I don't want them to be influenced by looking around at what others are saying. And then I want them to raise their hand, yes or no. And I'll, I'll ask them questions like, uh, do you want to get good grades based on the color of your skin or based on your hard work? Uh, do you want to get a position in college because you're a minority or you're a woman or because something else or based on the grades you earned in high school? Uh, do you want people to judge you based on the color of your skin or your clothing or your hairstyle? or what kind of house you live in, or judge you based on your character. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was right when he said, judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And really, the anti-racism that we've seen so prevalent in the last few years uh, is outright racism. Judging people by the color of their skin, uh, that's judging people evilly. It's not judging them by the character. And James reinforces this point in verse 10, which, again, is one of those that pops up in your catechism instruction, if you're anything like me, uh, that uh, don't think just because I have not broken this commandment that, therefore, I'm a little bit better or I'm still okay with God because I didn't do this or that bad thing. Uh, James says, if you keep the whole law but stumble at one point, uh, you are guilty of breaking all of it. So uh, even if you manage to be very racially sensitive, uh, but you get drunk or you are uh, disrespectful or you have illicit sex or you gossip, uh, that one mistake uh, means you may as well have uh, put on a hood and burned a cross uh, and joined the Ku Klux Klan. Right, and I use that verse too as we go through the commandments and then we look back, well, there's a fifth commandment. Well, you didn't murder someone, but you did hate someone. And then you hurt your neighbor. Well, who else did you hurt? Oh, you broke the first commandment. You sinned against God. Sixth commandment. Oh, you didn't commit adultery, but you were uh, dressing or looking at someone dressed inappropriately. And you looked at them inappropriately. Oh, you also broke the first commandment. So every time you sin, you're really sinning against God. Uh, the end of chapter two is really the sticking point where we get into that uh, tricky business of is James promoting salvation by works along with the true faith? Uh, and usually Christians who believe uh, in salvation by works along with faith, they, they will say good things about, you know, Jesus died for me and I'm forgiven and I believe in, in uh, scripture. But, uh, but you still got to do something. They kind of tack it on as an as a add-on at the end. And, uh, and often they will use passages like this from James chapter 2, verses 14 through uh, 26, 
in order to say, well, James says that you're justified uh, not by faith, but by works. Now, the question is, uh, in front of whom are you, is James talking about being justified? Right. He's saying with the example of Abraham, he was justified before God by his faith. But then people saw that, and so they were um, justified in the eyes of the people by his works. And it's the same way with Rahab. She was justified before God because she believed in the Lord. And then she demonstrated that faith in uh, hiding the spies and then sending them on their way. Um, I, there's, there's a whole lot that we could say about any of these examples. Um, it, we didn't really talk about the believers that James was writing to and saying in, in verses 14 through 18, um, you know, how can you say that you're a believer if you, if you say, well, I, I'm forgiven and now I'm going to send a, a hungry or, or needy person on their way without doing anything kind for them. Um, it, it is not the doing of the kindness that is what makes you or declares you right with God, but it does declare you right in the eyes of the people who see you doing those good deeds. And so your good deeds are important. Um, like, like Pastor Zarling said earlier, um, faith alone justifies, uh, but as we're moving about on this earth, faith is not, nobody can see your faith. You, you have to show it uh, by good works. And, and maybe it's not feeding the needy family or giving the, the beggar on the street a $5 bill. Maybe your good works are something else, but you do need, they do need to be shown and, and people need to see them. And it's interesting that in the EHV, uh, that uh, it says in verse 14, such faith and cannot save him, can it? And faith is in quotation marks. And the notes for the EHV point out that the uh, authors of it uh, put that in there purposefully because uh, with the quotation marks that real faith, uh, that that's not real faith, is really a sham. Uh, so James is warning his readers about thinking they can have faith, but no deeds. And there I think about the Christians that like to go to church early on Sunday morning, and they'll go to Bible study, and then they go out for brunch, but then they don't demonstrate their faith because they're very cheap when they give the tip to the, to the waitress at the restaurant. Uh, and then she understands who the who the people are that are coming for brunch on a Sunday morning, all dressed up in their finest church clothes, and then they're giving so cheaply, and they're kind of rude and so forth. No. Uh, James is talking to us, uh, Christians, that we need to demonstrate our faith, sing our praises on Sunday morning. That's our faith. And then show that faith as we're dealing with our kids who weren't always sitting still in church. Uh, as we leave and we're in the parking lot, show our faith when we're going to the restaurant, show our faith all different kind of ways. He says, we can't just say to someone who's hungry or hurting or struggling on you know, a waitress's salary, hey, you're doing, you're doing a fine job. Hey, come to church, Jesus saves. No, show them your faith in the way you, you act with them. And even if the EHV editors didn't put those little quotation marks uh, or James... Uh, it, James wouldn't have known about quotation marks or anything like that. Um, but James himself makes it clear there, there's more than one way to describe faith. 
faith it could be you know true and saving faith faith could also be your your superstition or your belief uh that does you no good and he uses the example of the demons and says uh yeah demons can have faith so it's almost like james puts quotation marks there even if he doesn't know what quotation marks are uh he's saying demons can have faith uh so don't just think that uh, this is your your uh, it, your faith is your get out of jail free card, but it, it should never be used as an excuse to uh, skip or avoid showing showing kindness to those who need it. Then you go on to chapter three. A way of demonstrating your faith is uh, James talks about the tongue, and he uses three pictures in verses three to six to describe the power of the tongue. Uh, he says, the tongue is like a bit that's able to control a large horse. The tongue is like a ship's rudder. It's a small part of the body, but it boasts of great power and has the ability to control the whole body. And the tongue is like the spark that starts a huge forest fire. So again, it's a small part of the body, but it serves as a vehicle for lust that can turn uh, and dominate every other part of the body. Uh, it's like a match lit from hell, setting fire to everything around it. So Pastor Lighton, we didn't do any geeky stuff. So I wanted to bring up something here. Uh, so a couple of years ago, there was a really awful Batman v Superman movie. Uh, and that whole movie and the whole premise of it could have been avoided if Batman, who was upset at Superman for the way he uh, had gone up against Zod in a previous Superman movie, if he would just want to talk to him. And if Superman would have talked to Batman and asked, why are you so mad at me? But they didn't do that. And so they're able to have this entire bad movie on that premise. Or uh, going to the Marvel Universe, you have uh, Civil War. So there's a whole bunch of graphic novels. And then they condensed it into one movie of Captain America's team fighting against Iron Man's team. And all because they didn't talk to each other. And now you've got superheroes fighting and injuring each other all because, uh, you know, they didn't talk. So uh, everything could have been ironed out if Iron Man would have spoken up and Captain America, could he was shielding himself from all of the hard work by not talking. You see what I did there? The shield, iron, yeah. I got it, I okay. got it. Um, uh, yeah, this, this section actually uh, brings up some memories, of, again, from catechism class for me because... Uh, my dad was my catechism teacher, and he was great, and he uh, really pushed us with a lot of uh, strong, uh, a lot of uh, long sections, uh, passages that we had to memorize, and this was one of them. I'm not going to be able to replicate it for you in the EHV. It would do no good for the listeners anyway, because they couldn't tell if I'm reading it off the page or not, but uh, it was basically verse 3 uh, to uh, verse 12. Uh, that we had to rattle that whole thing off. But I think his point was, as young people, you, you got to watch out how you talk and that, that the things you say and the words that you choose and use uh, can get you into a lot of trouble uh, or they can, they can do good things for you. And I, I think this also, uh, again, sorry to keep harping on catechism class, but like this is a great example of why we have kids memorize and recite uh, uh, the catechism and portions of scripture out loud. What are we really doing there? We're teaching them, here's the proper way to use your tongue. And I think a lot of times it's seen as 
oh, this is, uh, you know, robotic or we're, we're making kids into mindless drones that can just spit back words. No, these are living words uh, that carry the Holy Spirit with them. And when they memorize them, they're, they, like I said, I can't remember this now, but this has now informed the way that I talk uh, so that, that I, can, I can speak in a way that lines up with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is, it's easy to see the tongue, you know, the, with the bit and bridle of the horse or the rudder of the ship, that uh, it's that little small piece that steers this giant thing of your life off course or, or on course. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make, is that it's also possible to use your tongue for something good that can turn your, your, your whole ship or your life or your horse in the right direction. And then in the end, he, uh, verses 13, the end, he talks about wisdom. Uh, why does wisdom make a person humble? Well, a truly wise person knows himself for what he is, that he's a sinner. He knows he's saved by Jesus Christ alone. He knows that he's no better than other fellow Christians uh, and that unbelievers, too, uh, that they can be saved just like he was. And so he lives Humbly unto the Lord, trusting the Lord's wisdom uh, for for him is best. And there I think of, as our Southeast Wisconsin District Mission Board Chairman, I ask for a lot of help, that I know other pastors and churches have done things. So I talked to a couple of pastors on some questions that I have that I want to do in our district for the mission board. But I'm a big proponent of, you know what? I'm sure someone else has done this and done this better. Let me borrow from them and adapt it to our situation. And I think that's uh, humility. Uh, I was speaking to one of our council members the other day as we're finishing up the last few stages of our merger from Epiphany and New Hope becoming Water of Life. And I told him that years ago, I read a book, a business book called Good to Great. And on the, in the book, it talks about getting everyone on the bus and putting everyone in the right positions on the bus to move forward. And I was just telling our council member, I said, that's the only way that we could effectively do a merger when everything else is shut down this past year and uh, God put the right people in the right place at the right time that a year later that we're able to be fully merged. Uh, and I think that's humility, finding people to do the things that we cannot do. So what you're saying is nobody is as humble as you are. That's right. That's right. Uh, my wife likes to say that uh, I'll get my humility gem and my crown of glory when I get to heaven. That's right. Yeah. Look at me, God. Look at how humble I am. Uh, but, yeah, I don't want to make it sound like no, no, I'm bragging just, about how humble I am. Always, you can always make that joke with, with any kind of talk about humility. Is so, I'm, I'm so humble. Yeah. Well, I, I always laugh at Moses when he's writing that no, there's no one as humble as Moses was. And Moses is writing it. He's writing it. Moses yeah. is the one writing it. But I just use that as examples of, of saying that it's okay to put others and, and learn from others and, and then learn from from scripture and learn from Jesus himself about being humble. I'm all set. If you are. All right. And, and James and Micah. All right. So next week we're going to finish St. James 
the brother of Jesus, and then we're going to listen to St. Peter, the brother of St. Andrew, and the one who hung out with Jesus so much. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Lightning Bug, that we are here at, uh, not Water of Life, but we're at the, what did you call it, the... Casa del Lightning. There we go. Uh, so stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>